But yeah, Monday, Monday. How was your weekend? Uh, pretty chill with the uh, springtime weather is crazy here. We actually had a tornado warning on Friday, I believe. Uh, yeah, Friday afternoon out of nowhere. Just, you know, phone starts freaking out. iPad, everything in the house starts buzzing and alerting you. Tornado warning uh, in the next town over. So I hopped in my car, went and chased it. Couldn't see anything, unfortunately, but <laughs> you chased uh, it. it was too... It was too uh, like foggy and you know, it was moving pretty quick. I didn't want to chase on the Mass Pike, which is a, a toll road because like, once you get on there, there's no turnaround. There's no exits. Like exits are every 15 or 20 miles. You know, mm-hmm. That's no fun. So yeah, it was worth a shot though. You, you know what I really, really, really want is Radar Scope, which is a radar app to have CarPlay support because that would be awesome to have heads up radar and GPS while you're chasing. Oh man, that would be the bee's knees i feel like that enable a lot of people to do some make some questionable decisions yeah for better or for worse <laughs> for better or for worse uh when i was i must have been in third or fourth grade a tornado came through the town i was living in and this was before iphones and all that so i just remember we always had um, a scanner and so when things got like kind of crazy outside looking they, my parents would turn the scanner on have and there was like some sort of weather alert thing and i just remember the noise that used to make and uh it still makes that noise probably still does make that noise but yeah the tornado came through and took out the town and uh didn't chase it because i was a kid (laughs) but i remember it being pretty wild but i I can only imagine what it's like now getting you know an update on your wrist like oh hey there's a tornado versus back then like oh this guy looks pretty wild maybe we should go find the scanner and turn it on I'll get on a small soapbox here, maybe like a soap container, maybe a soap tray. Don't slip. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, I probably have not mentioned this on the show, but uh, I'm a big weather nerd, if that's a thing. Uh, I have been storm chasing, used to regularly take chasecations. That's cool. Uh, on the plains in the early spring to uh, to go chase, chase tornadoes and severe weather and that kind of thing. Uh, and always kind of prided myself on being safe and not making stupid decisions. You know, I'm not like a thrill seeker. I just imminent for the photography and just the, you know, the challenge of it. And anyways, uh, I'll post a link to my blog in the show notes. It's called The Suck Zone. The Suck Zone? It's a, it's a reference to uh, a line from the movie Twister. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, Googling Dust, it now. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's The Suck Zone. It's the point at which the tornado lifts you up sucks you up i like this little uh, shout out on your site the suck zone is the point basically at which the twister sucks you up that's not a technical term for it obviously dusty and twister there you go that's cool but uh when i first started chasing the cell uh data network was still very sparse uh you know smartphones were not were just coming on the scene right data was very hard to come by I actually chased one year using an XM satellite-based weather system, which was like incredibly expensive. It was like hundred bucks a month or something, and uh, you. But it was cool because you always had service, right? You you, you had a the laptop a receiver plugged into your laptop over USB, and it would feed you real time radar and uh, like weather reports and stuff. So that was cool because we always had data. But uh, now with the availability of, you know coverage is much better right and it really does like you said it enables people to uh think that they know what they're doing mm-hmm. and put themselves in situations that they shouldn't be right especially with sharing of videos and like of course you're always going to see videos of like close calls and things where people turn out okay but a lot of times it doesn't and people make stupid decisions because they don't know what they're looking at and it's uh and then the chase days especially like the beginning of spring where people are all waiting like they've been waiting all winter for like a good chase day and if it's a weekend god forbid like the roads it's like a it's like gridlock in the middle of really? some podunk town in the middle of you know kansas oh yeah it's insane you can watch them on the uh, storm track or uh, not storm track uh spotter network where the people like you know have gps trackers and shows where they are and stuff and yeah it's it, it's it's crazy how how much the accessibility of data has led to a huge huge influx of new chasers this radar scope app is cool i've always really been been 
uh, amazed by just this this side of technology. So when I was surfing a lot, I would have you know all these different like wave sites open, and just thinking about just the the the, the, the technology chain. Like there's a, bu- a buoy sitting in the water, and a wave makes it go up, and that transmits a signal to this other place, and they transact they like transmit that signal other like you know to another API and then all these different websites are graphing that data in real time it's i don't know it's really cool to me yeah radarscope is uh it's easily the best radar app at least for for weather nerds self-proclaimed weather nerds <laughs> it's uh it gives you really full control over the raw products which is just really good for looking at you know reflectivity which shows you the precipitation and also uh velocity which shows you you know the speed and direction the winds are blowing so you can identify areas of rotation yeah what was the other website that you showed me maybe it was last week uh it was maybe wind patterns windy windy. windy.com yeah stuff like this always blows my mind too just the amount of information we have about the planet that we're living on windy is wild because it's based almost solely on like model data you know it takes takes real observations and it kind of massages them Mm. and then also like does forecast right and uh man the visualizations that they have on here are pretty damn cool it really gives you a new insight into you know i've never seen things done this way before so it makes it so cool yeah so to describe it basically when you land on windy.com you get uh, a map of of kind of where you're at and then i think it lands you on the wind view and so it basically is drawing these little lines all over the planet of the current wind direction and speed and how and how intense the wind is yeah, the lines look like little like shooting stars almost to show you the Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. It's just so cool, man. I I just like to just look at stuff like this all day. I don't know. It always reminds me of you know, have you seen the movie The Perfect Storm? Oh god, it's been so long. Yeah, but when they do that zoom out, so they're they're like doing uh an above shot of the boat and they do this pull out and you go through the clouds and up and then you see like the eye of the hurricane however many miles away. I always thought that was awesome. Maybe I should have been a weatherman. It's not too late. Was that a meteor- meteorologist? Yes, meteorologist. Return? They don't study meteors. They don't study meteors. Well, I'm just going to stare at this map while you talk to me. About- that was a tangent. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're going to get hypnotized. Yeah, basically. Uh, what else have you been up to? I, you've been kind of like spouting off in the in the Discord a little bit about Tailwind and CSS. And uh, I don't think about CSS much anymore these days, but I'm interested to hear what you're uh, been, what you've been talking about and working on. Yeah, so in the past couple of days since we talked, uh, Friday, I tried to do a Refactor Friday. Oh. Imagine that. So I, I've been trying to do this for a while. And by this, I mean uh, now that I've launched the new RHR Nuxt front-end application to uh, clean it up and you know keep the functionality the same and kind of get things in one cohesive kind of pattern in terms of decide the way I want things to be structured in the application. And obviously, you know, fix bugs and stuff too. But whatever about that. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I just want the code to look pretty. Uh, but uh, one of the things is Tailwind uh, 1.0 Beta 5, I think, is where we are currently. Basically, I was running on the pre-beta versions of Tailwind, which is the utility-based CSS framework. And uh, yeah, 1.0 is coming out soon. So I figured this is a good chance as any to get all that crap in order because I didn't really like the way... I'd gone about it. It was very slapdash, like write things as quickly as I can just to to get them out there. And I've never been really, really strong with my CSS organization. Maybe you can give me some tips. Like we can talk about that. But just in general, I've just never been happy with where things live, how they're structured, how to find things. Okay. Um, maybe CSS is just intrinsically a pain in the butt to deal with. But I tell you, I've learned a lot on this path and there's a couple of I had a couple of thoughts here and a couple of things I've learned I kind of wanted to talk about yeah uh yeah I'd be happy to talk about any and all of the above <laughs> okay so Tailwind 1.0 finally brought support for uh using their utility classes in uh view single file components which means that if I define a style block in a in a view component I can use the apply, I don't know what the word is, macro or, or directive or whatever. Tailwind has this apply thing, which allows me to basically uh, jam a bunch of uh, <laughs> special s- selectors together. That's not the word. Compose. Compose is a more appropriate 
computer science term, mm-hmm. compose a bunch of styles together. And uh, they finally had that in 1.0 because I couldn't do that before. And uh, so I was like, oh, this is great. I can use scoped styles and for all my components, and I can define the thing. Then I don't have to be jumping back and forth between the CSS files and the view files, and great. And I started doing that, and then I got, it just like started falling apart. I was like, oh, well, this class I actually use in two places, right? Right. And I can, you don't have to use scope styles, but then if you just have these little chunks of style code strewn about your different files, you never know, you're never going to know where to look for it. Like I couldn't, I couldn't, I immediately could not find things that I was looking for Mm -hmm. because like they were reused in multiple places and I hadn't maybe realized it right away. And so I ended up like basically just trying to move towards that and then just pulling it all back out and just putting it back in the CSS files. <laughs> Cause it was just like, it was just too much to manage. And, and I, I feel like scoped styles and just, you know, having the styles defined in line with components, it works really well for a lot of applications uh, or a lot of, use cases i should say but when you're designing like an application where everything is kind of has a cohesive style and reuses a lot of previous elements and maybe you have the same like view that gets rendered by two separate components whether like you're on mobile or desktop or something right like you have to reuse some of those styles and it just doesn't i just could not find a a happy medium for that okay yeah so I think I probably would have ended up doing what you just talked about, how you you end up moving stuff out of your single file components back into the the external style sheets. I, I think I never really get to this step where I'm starting to build my own uh, collection of uh, applied Tailwind classes. And I kind of just stop at the the place where I'm just typing a bunch of classes onto view components. And so... <laughs> Really, the only thing that I've ever used the the apply directive for is maybe for like buttons. So almost like theme variants almost is, is what I use those for mostly. Uh, different colors, maybe like maybe varying padding sizes, like small, medium or large or something like that. But for the most part, I I don't really make a bunch of, say, like a bunch of different container style classes that are applying white space things from Tailwind. I just put those directly in the view component and... What I end up doing is I'm just really, uh, really religious about just using you know container view components and uh, list item view components, for example, and that kind of stops some of the repetitive. I don't know what else to call it besides like you basically have like formulas of of tailwind classes that you're stringing together, right? So uh, I'm trying to think a, a good example might be like a grid system or something like that, right? So instead of on every container typing out the same three classes and on every list item typing out the same three classes, you know, tossing that into to um, uh, a different class using apply might work, but I just never really get to that step. And I think that's partly because I haven't had to reskin or like build an app from scratch like that. Um, but also partly because it's just really easy for me to go through and manipulate classes on a one-on-one basis without having to worry about things that are reusing this or things that uh, will break if I change this. Yeah, deciding when to use stuff in line versus not is is really interesting where where you end up when you start to use a utility-based framework, like drawing, brushing with broad strokes. Uh, anything position, padding or margin related usually ends up in line mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because yeah. like it's a one-off, right? <laughs> And uh, like you said, when you're using something like a list item component where you're already iterating over it, you don't have to worry about extracting that out into a class because like you're you're it's already being iterated. Like uh, you you only have to define it once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the component gets reused multiple times versus defining the class once and having to reuse the the class itself. Yeah, I think what you just said was what I was really trying to get at was that it's almost like an additional layer of separation of concerns, right? So if you're mixing kind of theme theme elements with white space and padding elements and positioning elements and you're moving that all into the same class well then you have the same the the I feel like the idea of utility classes in the first place was to was to kind of avoid that uh, cascade right avoid the um the combination of 
of varying concerns about whatever you're trying to do with the style. And and uh, to a lot of people, I think like avoiding the cascade mates meant something different. I mean, to me, it even means something different. Like, you know, like you don't have a bunch of styles overriding styles overriding styles, right? Uh, and so, you know, one, one utility class did one thing and that was a thing that it did. And that way you could be sure that when you were using it, you weren't accidentally applying other styles to this element that you're working on. And I think to a point where if you start combining, say, utility classes together that have different concerns, whether it's display or theming, then you kind of run in the same situation, right? And maybe it's not like cascading down through children and all that stuff, uh, but it's still a similar issue because then you have to start worrying about, okay, well, if I am have, like, say, for example, a card class that has margin padding and maybe a box shadow on it, um, uh, along with like background colors and stuff, then you have to start worrying about, well, does this margin and padding make sense in this use case for something that has a background color and a shadow on it, right? Does, does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Yeah, and in fact, I found that uh, I try to avoid putting any styles at all on like the root element of a view component. Like usually it'll just be a div or something in a component, right? Mm-hmm. Or whatever the whatever the, the element is. But like I won't put any margin or padding on that at all. I leave it up to the person because cause the way view like jams all the, oh, the classes okay. yeah, together yeah. Yeah. and concatenates them nice for you. Uh I basically leave it up to the parent to decide like how much space this has to breathe around it mm-hmm. or whether it has a shadow, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, that's that's something that I try to do too and I find that it works really well. So like the point you made, if you're in a view component and uh, you have, say you have a view component in the template and you have another view component that you're using there, you could add a class attribute to your view component and a class is on it there. Uh, and by doing that, like you said, it gives you more, it gives the parent the ability to determine how this thing uh, is contained or not contained within the context of the parent. And that makes the underlying child component more flexible because the child component shouldn't necessarily need to know how it should be presented in different contexts, right? It should just be thrown in there. It should only worry about the data and the presentation that it has inside of it, not where it's being used in your application. Yeah, and, and I've really started embracing Flexbox because Tailwind makes it sane to deal with. And uh, Flexbox makes makes it really <laughs> flexible for lack of a better better word <laughs> sure. uh, because just because of the way it, it it handles layouts is actually makes sense once you understand the terminology it's really really powerful i i like it a lot i've been using flexbox for everything for a while too and i'd well yeah i i think a lot of people i should stop saying a lot of people i sometimes would complain about the complexity of flexbox without something like tailwind because like you said tailwind does really simplify it a lot and to me, the way that, say, like Tachyons or, or Terrawind kind of put it together, it just makes sense. It makes it really easy to work with. You don't have to memorize all the different syntaxes and flavors and all that. You just say, I don't know, justify center, align items center or something, and it just works. Oh, God, you don't know how good it feels to have, <laughs> be able to have, I mean, I'm sure you do know, but have a block. Say, say you've got a title bar of a card, right? On the left side of the card, you've got the title. On the right side of the card header, you've got some controls or some text or some buttons or menus or whatever, some stuff. And they're all different heights. And be able to say, okay, jam this thing on the left side. This thing pins to the right side, you know, justify between them Mm -hmm. and then align them in the center. Like not by the baseline, not by the top. I want them aligned in the center. (laughs) Oh, God. So Nice. I should honestly. That's probably one of the things I should extract out. Justify between align center, <laughs> item center, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Call it. I don't. Nah, never mind. I'm not going to think of a name right now because it'll be a bad one either way. But yeah, that that seems like exactly. That seems like what the apply directive was made for with Hillwind is something that you do repetitively like that. Slap it in a single class and have it have it there. Or you know, I already mentioned the use case for theming, but like colors and and things like that. Um, you know, padding variances and padding and things. It it just works really great for that. Um, I haven't really ventured beyond. I mean, like pre-utility classes, what I would try to do is find something and stick to it. So, like BEMS, for example, is is one thing that I tried. Uh, that was okay. What I really actually liked, and I'm gonna try to think of it. It was a uh, something by Rico Cruz, I think is how you say his name. I might have just butchered his last name, but um. It was, he makes a bunch of stuff. That's really cool. 
Play the Jeopardy music now. RSCSS. Yes, that's what it was called. He had a different name for it. Maybe it was called Reasonable. I don't know. But anyway, it's just like it's like an offshoot of BEMS. So BEMS stands for Block Element Modifier. And so if you've ever looked, been looking at like the source code for a site and you see like double dashes and double underscores uh, for things, that's BEMS. So you have the parent component first, double or then under underscore uh, a nested element. So for example, if you have a nav bar with a title inside of it, the title selector would be navbar underscore underscore title. And then if you had a menu next to that, it would be navgar navbar underscore underscore menu. And if you had a modifier like, uh, say, active on the menu, it would be navbar underscore underscore menu dash dash active. So dash dash uh, is representative of a modifier or like a, a different state. And then underscore underscore is representative of an element inside the parent component. Okay. I mean, I, that makes sense. I think that fits a lot of use cases. Yeah. Yeah. And then RCSS or RSCSS, sorry, was just a little bit simplified. So it didn't necessarily say that you had to use underscore underscore or dash dash for all these different things. It was just saying, Hey, uh, if you have a search form, name the parent, the parent, um, element dot search form. And if you have a, a search button inside of that, just name it dot search button and then scope your selectors accordingly. And it was a little bit simpler. Uh, I feel like some of the BAM stuff can get really dogmatic. There's a lot of people that go back and forth and argue about things regarding BAM on the internet. And I don't know, RSCSS just really worked for me. And it was simpler. It gave me just enough rules, I think, to organize things correctly. Or, you know, correctly for me anyway. It's made it easy for me to maintain. But also, if you look at, um, I'll put this page in the show notes, but if you look at the elements page of RSCSS, it feels a lot like a view component or how I would um, structure a view component. And you have basically just a, a, a class on the parent element. And then you have, uh, you, you just have top level things. So you're, you're not, you're not necessarily trying to select three or four levels deep in a component, because at that point it should probably be another view component or it should probably be another uh, self-contained thing. And that's, I don't know, like once I found that, it just kind of stuck with it until I ran into view and utility-based classes. Yeah, I mean, scoped styles really, I won't say they solve this problem, but they really codify it and make it part of a you know first-class citizen. So which is- when you say scope style, do you mean like uh, view single file components, the CSS tag in there, or do you mean actual like scoped CSS? Or, mo- or No, I'm thinking of CSS modules, sorry. Yeah, when I say scoped styles, I'm talking about in a view single file component, you, you have an opening style tag, and then you have the scope attribute on it. I gotcha. Okay, yeah. Uh, that's exactly how I use how I use VS uh, VS Code. That's exactly how I use views um, views style tags with with the scope. Yeah, attribute. that's the only way I would use it. And uh, another reason I didn't do that was because I have a lot of components, and I was worried about performance because apparently it's a big performance hit uh, having selectors based off of because what it does is it makes special selectors that are tagged off of like a data attribute mm-hmm. uh but anyway just another moot point but yeah yeah i mean as soon as i got into i've called it three different things i think uh, and paul and i used to talk about this a lot atomic css uh functional css utility class css whatever i don't know it all just means the same thing uh ever since i kind of ran into that i was thinking about this the other day actually ever since i've kind of run into this pattern of of building UIs, whether it was base CSS back in the day or tachyons and now Tailwind CSS, I haven't written a ton of CSS at all. I've just used classes to build UIs. So, okay. When we're looking at this RSCSS thing, this is cool. This is some stuff that, like, these are rules that I've sort of internalized and, and intrinsically done, but never tried to put it in words. And that's, I love stuff like this. Like, give me a give me a taxonomy or give me give me a set of rules style guide any day of the week right mm-hmm. but everything he here is motivated by classes that i would consider to be semantic okay in the sense that the class defines what the field is, or what the element is so for example they have a search form the input is called field and the button is called action whereas in the tailwind world you might have a uh, Instead of calling it field, you might just call it like control or input, padding three, bordered, 
you know, gray, drop shadow, inner drop shadow, right? So, so this for this kind of issue of semantic versus uh, like dis- strictly display styles, and I always struggle with that. With these, like, cause some cases you just have to have reusable styles. You just have to define a class that says like what the thing is, or else you're gonna lose your goddamn mind. But then when it's interspersed with, with, you know, when you're mixing those, I have a hard time figuring out like the the happy medium there yeah i i guess i kind of think of it as like imperative versus declarative in in how i'm kind of building my uis right so i i haven't run it like i haven't come across a situation where i just need to come up with some sort of name that means something to me aside from describing how this thing might look via the class names right and I think mainly that's because just view components, to me, the, the view components are kind of doing that for me, I suppose. And I tend to, to slap shop the components up a lot. So I have lots of small components that do one thing or a couple of things. It's basically, as few things as possible. But I, I guess I can see where you're coming from, where like maybe mixing the two feels weird, right? Because it feels like you're crossing streams that you shouldn't be crossing. Maybe I'm just overthinking it too, like... <laughs> to- putting my thoughts into words now it's like man is this really something i need to worry about <laughs> oh i mean i think i think it makes sense like i i think what you're saying makes sense because it, you you said you like a good taxonomy right and to me to me when you're naming something like that when you're semantically naming something it's a taxonomy you look at the class you know exactly what this thing is and probably what it does too right whereas when you're using tailwind and you look at uh, an element in the dom you don't know what the thing does you can look you can like kind of tell what it looks like based off the classes that it has, but you, there's no context as to like what this thing is or what it should be doing, right? Yeah, and but you made a really good point is that the view components already sort of capture that. Yeah. And if you do, if you do, maybe that's a code smell. If you do end up with something that's so contrived that you can't look at it and know what it is, maybe it's time to wrap that in a component. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, sometimes I do, sometimes I do add a class to the top level of the component, but I never style it in the classes, basically, I guess now that I think about it, contextualizing the markup for myself, which is funny because you're right. The view component would, should be doing that. I mean, like the name of the component should probably, would probably be similar to what like the class that I'm adding to the element. But yeah, I don't know that. I guess that's how I'm thinking about it is I try not to rely too much on looking at the, the DOM or, or gaining context from that. And it's so different than, two years ago, how we used to build stuff, right? Because we had BEMS and we had RSCSS. Like you said, everything was kind of semantic. You look at it, the markup, and you have a pretty good idea of what's going on. Whereas now, you know, you can open up uh, the React Dev Tools or open up any sort of like modern website and it's div soup, so to speak, right? You can't really glean anything meaningful from looking at the markup. So here's... (laughs) I just thought of this. So one of the features I have to implement... Uh, which is kind of part of this refactor to make this easier was uh, we have a mode for like s- to support red green colorblind folks. Oh, that's cool. Uh, because we rely on a lot of primary colors in red and green. You know, that's like you know whether a station is available, it's green. If it's not available, it's red, and it's really hard for some people to see that difference. So what we do is we style it. So if you turn on that preference, all the greens just turn to blue. Mm-hmm. So. Basically, I'm going to have a bunch of styles sprinkled throughout my code that are like button green, but it's not green. Right. <laughs> it's blue in that case. But uh, uh, so, yeah, I've seen people do like button primary, secondary, tertiary. And right. But that yeah. again, that goes back to the argument. That's that's the bootstrap three way of doing things versus the, I don't know, bootstrap four way of doing things. Right. <laughs> oh, I'm not familiar at all with bootstrap. Oh, oh, bootstrap four, like embrace utility classes very much mm-hmm. uh but it still had the concept of like theme colors primary secondary error okay. warning info. oh oh so bootstrap three was like button green and uh no whatever. no um no it was the other way around okay interesting yeah. so yeah because now that you, you mention it like that you know having different colorblind modes like blue isn't blue and green isn't necessarily green but based on the colorblind mode primary would be primary always and secondary would be secondary always they would just be different values and what if what if the blue sky that I see isn't the same as the blue <laughs> sky that you see? Uh, it, it might not be. Then maybe we should not say the sky is blue. We could just call it the primary. And maybe green would no blue would be because it, it you know there's more water than anything on this planet. Blue and green, primary, secondary. 
<laughs> we're going to call it sky blue or actually we could give it a css uh a css uh official name like cornflower <laughs> sure yeah but yeah that's an interesting point i hadn't thought about that naming naming it button blue instead of primary depending you know that like you said if you look at it it's not it might not be blue that's a yeah I always thought like the color theming where you're saying like tertiary, secondary, that was hard for me to envision in my head what the color actually was, like the color scheme was by looking at the code. But now, you know, I kind of like that now because now that I'm thinking about it, colorblind modes, it makes sense. It's not necessarily what I see it as. Anyway. I'll wrap this up, but that's kind of where I've been, what I've been struggling with. One other quick point I wanted to make, I wish I had done this in the beginning. It's too much work to change everything now. The default font size and tailwind is 16 pixels Mm -hmm. and every style every every size every padding by default is based in rems which is relative to that base font size so one rem is 16 pixels right man 16 pixel font on a screen is gigantic it's like reading a children's book (laughs) so uh yeah i wish and i end up using text small for everything and then like if all the text is small none of the text is small so (laughs) then i make text extra small so yeah man i wish i had done like 13 or 14 pixel based font size for that i still might go back and do that but 16 pixels is is the like the default rem em one em size for like legacy reasons i'm pretty sure or typography reasons based in like the gutenberg press who the hell knows (laughs) but yeah uh, i never knew yeah it's it's comically large i think well that's cool man i it's cool to hear i mean not that long ago we were talking about you actually just starting on this project so it's coming a long ways yeah man well sorry i (laughs) ranted for so long what's uh what's been going on over there mr slap chop slap chop well first of all friend uh now best he's now the best friend officially of the show <laughs> <laughs> andrew uh sent me a slap chop my very own slap chop he sent to me in the mail and it, it arrived on my birthday and he had no idea it was my birthday so he timed it very well so that's that's cool thanks for the slap chop so i'm going to try and do a review of that uh sometime when i can actually use it i'm about to be gone for two weeks and uh, i probably won't take it on the plane with me but yeah slap chop review incoming um let's see apart from that I got to hang out with Greg a little bit. That was cool for the show, Greg, and he kind of sparked my my um, interest in reading again. So I really I like to read books a lot. I just I'm very good at not reading books, <laughs> uh, but once I get going, I I tend to read a lot. And uh, yeah, so I've been picking up a few books re- recently. Uh, the first book I picked up at Greg's, uh, what do you call it? Recommendation. I actually have a page on my site about this now. SeanWash.com/slash reading list. Uh, yeah, I read the book Anything You Want by Derek Sievers. Sievers. Uh, the, he was the guy that started CD Baby. And so it's basically just a bunch of things that he learned over the course of running and selling CD Baby back in the 90s. And uh, now I'm working on a book called Modular JavaScript. And I think last, was it last episode we were talking? I was kind of like having an internal struggle on air about which language to dig into next. <laughs> And hey, you're stuck on JavaScript. Yeah, I'm stuck on JavaScript. So, yeah, so I picked up this book, Modular JavaScript. Turns out you can actually read it online for free. There's a whole series of books by the same author, which I'll put in the show notes. Um, but yeah, so I'm reading my uh, Mastering Modular JavaScript. And yeah, so I don't know. One of the things that I always struggled with, I think, with Node was that there I could like tell that there were some patterns, some semblance of design patterns that people would use, but there wasn't any sort of strict rules, like say that comes with Rails. Or or a similar framework, and so JavaScript. Sorry, go ahead. J- t- JavaScript modules all all over the place. Yes, there's no consistent naming convention. There's no consistent import or export style uh, in terms of what you get when you import something. Mm-hmm. Right? Are you getting an object? Are you getting a class? Are you getting like you can export anything as a yep. default? Right? Yep. Oh man, what a yes. That is a. That I struggle with that constantly, especially because none of the documentation is standardized, so you don't even know like mm-hmm. where to even look for that. Oh man, major gripe, major gripe. Sure, All yeah. Right, continue. So that's why I picked <laughs> up this book because I was like, "There's got to be some method to this madness," and uh, there's not real. I mean, yeah, there's some design patterns that people use, and so basically, what I'm trying to do is just say, learn about a few of them and just use them, like things that that people that have been around for a while recommend, and things that are more common, and. That was maybe the hardest thing about getting into Node and not necessarily Node itself because that has a more consistent API, but 
the JavaScript world in general and, and all the different packages there, there's just not really a standard way of doing things. And I think that's why initially when I jumped into Node, I was looking at the happy uh, framework because that standardized a lot of things. Like, so you have your main, it's been a while since I looked at it, but you have kind of your main entry point in the server and then everything else is basically plugins or middleware that you put into the stack. And they made it really easy. All the middleware had the same function signature. Uh, and that was that. Like, that's all you had to learn. Okay, if I'm going to add something into my API for this specific request, then I just make a new piece of middleware and the function signature is going to be the same as it always is. And okay, well, now I'm done learning about that. I'm just focusing on the implementation details. So it's like plug, basically, yeah, for yeah. JavaScript? That's a good way to put it. Uh, you know, and Express has, has some things like that, but but I really like the way Happy had it laid out. And so, yeah, so I picked up the book Modular JavaScript, and uh, it's it's good so far. Um, the first few chapters were about uh, just like the, the the essentials of of modular design, you know. So it's going over certain things like Solid, for example. Like one of the first things it talks about single responsibility principle, where a module should have one responsibility and it should focus on that. And if you start to have a module that has two responsibilities, it's going to get confusing and hard to follow and hard to maintain. And so it segued sort of from the solid principle into, okay, well, here's here's a way that you can enforce that and here's why it's a good idea. So it started talking about the importance of thinking about your public interface or how you're exposing uh, your code to the, the consumer world, right? So you just talked about there's not really a way to know. Are you getting a function? Are you getting a class? What are you getting? An object? And so this author is talking about the importance of like thinking about that upfront and documenting it upfront and thinking about your API from the consumer standpoint first, before you start diving into the implementation details and through the, the single responsibility principle, he advocates, you know, make it as simple as possible instead of trying to make everything under the sun configurable, you know, maybe it, maybe it's efficient to just expose, expose one function or, or one class or something from your, from your um, your interface. And then from there, you know, you can follow a few patterns. Say if you need to have some sort of configuration happening, um, here's how you can do that. And so he goes into what's called the revealing uh, design pattern, which, you know, uh, if, if you're looking at a, a node module or a JavaScript module and you have a bunch of functions there at the bottom, you might export default and then you might only export two of them if you have six, right? So that's just a way of like hiding the implementation details from the API consumer. So if you have a pretty complicated uh, implementation, maybe you still only need to export one function that a person can use and they don't need to be aware of all the internal stuff, right? And this is all stuff that applies to all the different languages, right? So with Elixir, you know, docfalls or defp, same thing. It's just, I suppose it's just like codifying stuff for me. And so I looked at the examples they gave for the revealing uh, the revealing design pattern. I was like, oh, I've, I've done this a hundred times now. You know, I just didn't know what the technical name for it was. So I guess that's what I'm trying to do by digging into this book is being able to put a put a, a name to a face, so to speak, with some of these patterns. So that way it removes some of the complexity of kind of scanning and, and parsing. So if I'm starting to recognize certain shapes, I'm like, oh, that's what's happening here. I can move on. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And does this, is it geared, can you tell more towards like library development versus application development or because in my mind those are two very different design goals in terms of when you think of something like configurability or you know what's exposed or how big the surface area is sure right in an application your surface area tends to be larger because you can control it you know exactly what's coming in and what's going out and like you you there's all this interweaves complexity whereas when you're writing maybe an open source library that other people are using, you kind of want to, you want to minimize that. You want to minimize the pain points. You want to minimize the knowledge and, you know, places where things could go wrong because people are going to find ways to break it. Sure. Uh, so does that, I don't know, does it feel, do you think those techniques are more applicable to one or the other or, or what? I think, so in my mind now when I'm thinking about it, I can't help but always think about applications in the terms of Phoenix context because that makes the most sense to me. <laughs> separating separating the consumption of your data layer or your business logic layer from everything else. Uh, and and so yeah, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about specifically if it's it's more geared towards plugin development or module development versus application development. But I think like some of the principles might make sense, right? So 
if I'm thinking about it in, in the context of a Phoenix context, or let's say, let's just call it domain-driven uh, development or just domains, right? You have your different domains. I think that's really kind of what it's approaching or what it feels like to me. So the example that uh, the book uses for the first few chapters, I believe, is something that could compile an email message and send it. And so it starts off implementing it in one file, and then it shows out, shows how you can kind of split this up into concerns or like, you know, like how a thing is rendered doesn't necessarily need to be uh, concerned with how a thing's actually sent over the wire, for example. So you might have a builder domain and you might have a sender domain, right? And so you might have your builder module and a sender, sender module. And so it's kind of just showing you how to break things up. And I don't know that it's really geared for one or the other. I think they're just trying to say, hey, if you, if you chop this up a little bit, it can become simpler. Now, in terms of, like you said, uh, I think you said it because I mentioned it, but like configs and things like that, I think it uses the example of um, the HTTP configuration for Node, how you can basically make a make a base config and, and all of the re- subsequent requests will use that. So it talks about that a little bit and, you know, why... Uh, it actually goes through, it talks about some JavaScript scope things and it talks about like how like a factory function works and why you might need a factory function for something like encapsulating state or settings, uh, depending. And uh, yeah, so it goes through that stuff and then shows you how you could plug that into sort of an isolated module to make it configurable. But still within the context of allowing it to do that, but not exposing all the internals to the world. Yeah, that's that's still something I struggle with JavaScript to this day is tr- like understanding, finding those boundaries, right? Because uh, JavaScript, notoriously, it's like very easy to make singletons and pollute the global scope and like leak everything everywhere. And, mm-hmm. and, but it's also really easy to build these relatively complex design patterns, right? In terms of, you know, the, the, the JavaScript inheritance model, the prototype based inheritance and, and uh, plus all the functional stuff that's built into it, right? Functions being first class, you know, citizens and types, being able to pass them around and and call them, and uh, it's 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 really interesting mishmash. And it, I still t- I still have trouble wrapping my head around it because it's so, like you said, there are there are no rules. It is so informal versus something like like a .NET where you have types and a framework to guide you and tell you how to how to design things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I guess that's, that's me learning that stuff is buying these books and, mm-hmm. and uh, trying to figure it out that way. But I mean, that's been, it's been really helpful to me. And the funny thing is that as, as I'm reading and as I'm writing JavaScript, I just keep thinking about, I keep saying, like, I keep thinking about it through the lens of Elixir, but I don't necessarily mean Elixir. I think I keep saying Elixir because Phoenix was the first thing to introduce me to domain driven design. Uh, but really, I guess what that's like the overarching theme that I'm trying to apply to all my stuff these days is 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 domain driven design. Actually, uh, Greg recommended me a book, which is on my site, I think, seanwash.com slash reading list. Now you all know how fast I type or how slow I type. Uh, I don't think I have it listed here. I'll put it listed. Uh, put a link to it in the show notes. But basically, you know, I've been asking a few people, like, hey, if there's one book I need to read, tech or otherwise, let me know. And he recommended that I check into this book about domain-driven development and domain-driven design. And yeah, I guess I've been doing Phoenix for a while now, and so that's my lens. Like that's how I that's how I understand things in the software world now is having domains and and um, building your building your business logic within those domains, and then allowing whatever consumer to get to the data they need through those domains. And so that's just traveling over to JavaScript, which I hope is okay. I, you know, I don't think it's not okay, but that's just how I'm understanding things these days. There was a library I used once. I can't for the life of me remember what it was now. It was a, it was a JavaScript client library for something. Uh, I don't remember what it was a client for. I think it was something Phoenix related. And but what was interesting about it was that the API for this library was basically rooted in functional immutable like immutable data structures and functional programming like the the way you like configured the object was you pass it to a function you got a new object back right right like you didn't mutate anything directly and everything was just done with functions and it was such a uh elixir way of doing things and it seemed to me like the person who designed it just did it I could tell they did it just because, like, 
because they could and javascript supports you doing stuff like that uh and it was like it was comfortable because i've you know been in that functional world now but i could see how that it's so jarring like i've never seen anything else written that way that would be really confusing for someone who didn't know why this was happening sure yeah i gotta see if i can find it if i can i'll put it in the show notes yeah, I don't know. For whatever reason, the d- domain-driven stuff and the functional way just just clicked with my mind. Where the the classical, well, classical, the class-based um, or object-oriented-based programming hasn't really. So that's that's why I've taken it and run with it. And it's kind of neat that JavaScript allows you to embrace kind of both worlds. You know, ES6 bringing in the the first you know first class classes uh, into the mix and. And on the other side, you know, a lot of people are pushing functional JavaScript and it's cool that you can kind of choose your flavor and run with it, you know, that things are flexible that way. But yeah, I don't know. The functional design or domain driven stuff seems to, to work for me for now. So that's what I'm what I'm running with. I mean, listen, in the early days of computer science, like, that was all there was, right? Yeah. I mean, you could, it's just layers and layers and layers of abstraction of functions, you know, modules are just bags of function functions. I mean, not in JavaScript, but in Elixir, modules are just bags of functions, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, my my modules are in JavaScript so far. Okay, well there you go. So, I I don't object oriented design works for for a lot of things and a lot of people and a lot of application styles. But I, yeah, there's something to be said for just having the the one type of abstraction and it's just functions. Yeah, we'll we'll see where that goes. Let's see, apart from that, I've just been learning a lot about emails. Maybe we can do a full episode on what I've learned about the business of sending emails and sending them correctly and uh, not spamming people and all that stuff. It's, I could probably talk for an hour on that by itself, but that's pretty much what I've been into. I think we need to do a hour-long episode on the Slap Chop. The Slap Chop? Well, I got to use it. Let me go get some onions out of the fridge and I'll throw them on the grill. Mm. Slap Chop them up. Well, on that note, if anyone does any feedback on any of the above, on any of the CSS things, because I'm sure someone has some feedback on what I had to say about BEMS in <laughs> organization. Uh, yeah, let us know. Um, good or bad, uh, criticism or compliments, throw them our way. We have thick skin, we can handle it, I promise. Um, aside from that, you know, if anyone feels the need to share the episode on Twitter or the other any other flavor of social networks, feel free to do that. And if anyone feels inclined to give us a rating, good or bad on iTunes. We'd appreciate that. Um, just any sort of activity. like We like hearing from you. We like conversing with you. So uh, let us know what you're thinking. As always, you can reach the show at DNC Show on Twitter. Sean is Sean Washbot. He is actually human, though, as far as I know. And I'm Shrock Will. Do you, have I ever told you where that nickname comes from? Don't remember. Oh, uh, well, back in the day when Spec was on the... They had their own Slack channel. That's how it started. Channel. They had their own room, and uh, I would jump in every morning and just dictate the discussion. So I would just come up with a couple of topics and just dictate the discussion around that. And people are like, "You're like a conversation bot," and that's how it started. <laughs> cool story. That's nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, show notes are available at dnc. Show. Uh, we'll have links to everything below, and check out some of those books. And uh, if you have any other book recommendations, let me know. I'd like to like to hear what you all are reading. I'll also post the show notes over on spectrum.chat where we are hanging out. You can have a real-time discussion with us about the show. Give us any of that aforementioned feedback. Uh, come say hi. That'd be awesome. And as always, thanks to Spec for having us, putting up with us, and uh, editing us to make us sound smarter than we are, and pulling out all the ums and the misspeaks and the let-me-try-that-again <laughs> uh, phrases. Uh, we're just, you know, happy to have them around and supporting us. So thanks, Spec. Thanks. Don't pull back the curtain, man. Don't pull back the curtain. People like to see behind the curtain. No, they they can't know. It's getting stuffy back here anyway, so we got to let some air in. If you're into other design and development related podcasts, definitely head on over to Spectrum FM and, and check out what they have to offer. They've got a lot of great shows there. And you said you're going to be away for a couple weeks, so we're going to have uh, some special guests on next week. So stay tuned for that. I, I think we discussed this off air before we recorded but longtime listeners of the show may have noticed that sean has never missed an episode of does not compute oh he has been the the single thread continuous for 173 continuous episodes people give him a break let him go away (laughs) don't be upset when he's not here next week 
Yeah, that's kind of crazy to think about. I mean, we've taken breaks, but yeah, I've never not been on an episode. I'm happy. I'm excited to listen to that one. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. You have something to look forward to. I do. All right. Well, as for this week, this episode was edited by Mikhail Delport and produced by Sarah Jackson. Well, I'll catch you uh, in a while. On the flippity flip, as Michael would say. (laughs) See ya. See ya. Monday. We've been really switching it up. Yeah, I don't think we've ever recorded on a Monday. I don't think so either. 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 Monday, Monday. Bob goes to the hardware store. This new Dodge pickup. I went to the hardware store yesterday. Oh, yeah? But, uh, yeah. I'll save the... I don't... Yeah, I don't don't necessarily need to tell that story because it might grow some people out. (laughs) Oh, wait. You don't even know. What's going on? A rat tried to crawl down a hole uh, back to the basement and it got stuck in the hole and it chewed through the wire and... Gave himself the electric chair. Oh, no. Yeah. Yep. So I ended up having to shut all the breakers off, and I called uh, the fire department just to be safe because uh, I'm not an electrician, and there was some smoke happening. And so, yeah, <laughs> I ended up having I mean, to... What's that? That's a smart smart move. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have thought of that, but smart move. Yeah, and so I ended up ending up having to wait uh, 24 hours for an electrician friend to come out and uh, yeah, so then we ended up having to go to the hardware store, buy some new wire caps and uh, a box and crawled under the house and stripped the burnt up cord out and uh, put a junction box in there and uh, sealed it back up. <laughs> but that was the whole thing. Yeah, the whole thing. Wow. Yeah. First time I've ever seen that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how large rats can get. Like they, like they get so large you don't even recognize them as rats. It was wild. I can say, I can text you a picture, but uh, can we put it in the show notes? Yeah, the fireman was like, "Well, it's the season because I get it's been raining a lot uh, over here, so they've been looking for places to get into houses." And so he's he's actually said that they've had a couple instances of the same thing happen, which I thought was pretty wild because I'd never heard of that happening before. But yeah, pretty pretty interesting. That's amazing. <laughs> never heard of that. Yeah, so I learned a lot about electricity this weekend and not how to how to not get shocked. Uh, and we ended up there was an old two twenty line for an old uh, oven that wasn't being used at all. So we ended up unhooking that completely from the breaker too. So I learned how to do all that stuff this weekend. Nice. Yeah. Doing doing uh, home electrical is fun. That's the one thing I feel somewhat confident in doing as long as you like know the basic, you know, as long as you know like the code things for like distances and all that stuff, like the actual handling of stuff is, I don't know. It's it's all satisfying. I don't know. <laughs> you know. I don't know any of that stuff. So... <laughs> It's it's more you just so know someone who trying does. to not get zapped because I got I got shocked once from an outlet and I'd rather not have that happen again. Yeah, it's not fun. Not fun at all. <laughs>